This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hello and welcome to this week's Money and Markets podcast. I'm Danny Hewson and boy has it been a week for markets and Wall Street in particular. The S&P 500 joined the Nasdaq in a bear market. We'll get the latest from Tom Sieber from Shares Magazine. Plus, I'm joined by another Tom, Tom Selby, AJ Bell's Head of Retirement Policy. Hi, Tom. Hi, Danny. Yes, the global meltdowns having a big impact on pensions. And I've been looking at how soaring inflation combined with market falls could have a dramatic impact on the retirement prospects of savers in drawdown. Gas prices are on the up again after an explosion at a US LNG processing plant shuts it down for three months. But we do now know when that extra help is on the way for people on benefits. Big questions for the Bank of England to process as job vacancies continue to soar and inflation takes a chunk out of wage growth. Netflix pins its hopes on a Squid Games reality show. Try saying that. And how a Korean boy band made Asian markets tremble. Plus, Dan Coatsworth has been talking to Ayush Abhijit, who helps to manage the Ashoka India Investment Trust, about what patient investors can get out of India. And Jenny Owen joins us for what could be her last money madness slot, sad times, with news of a late library fee that's topped £6,000. Stay tuned for that one. Can you imagine getting a library fee of £6,000? Uh, <laughs> yeah, painful. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to kick off with Monday's big sell-off in the United States, which spread to other markets, and the volatility hasn't gone away. As we record this Wednesday, early afternoon, because later today we're getting an interest rate decision from the Federal Reserve. And after last week's huge inflation number caught people by surprise, raise the prospect that the rate hike that will be announced today will be bigger than the 50 basis points investors had thought was pretty much nailed on. To take us through what happened, why and what we can expect, whichever way today's rate rise goes, I'm joined by another Tom, Tom Sieber from Shares Magazine. Hi, Tom. Hiya. First, let's start with how this unfolded. We had the inflation number at the end of last week. But Monday was when things really hit the fan. Yeah, so I guess you could characterise last Friday's inflation number as something of an economic earthquake and the subsequent market reaction and all reactions, if you like, as aftershocks from that. Um, so just to put that in a bit, this in a bit of context, if you think back to sort of the end of May, investors were becoming a little bit more cheerful. And principally, that was on the basis inflation could be on its way to topping out. And therefore, the Federal Reserve might be able to start taking its foot off the pedal when it came to interest rates. Um, Friday's news very much kicked that idea firmly into touch. And I think it's been a sort of process of the market factoring that in that's seen, you know, the sell-off extended and, and perhaps deepen as um, as the news kind of filtered through. Um, uh, you know, as we've already discussed, the selling of the last few days has pushed the, the main US flagship um, benchmark, the S&P 500, into bear market territory. And growth stocks, you know, NASDAQ was already struggling you know, in, even in relative terms, but growth stocks in particular have been absolutely hammered. Um, 
I mean, the Fed essentially has been trying to engineer a reasonably soft landing for the economy and the markets, whilst at the same time bringing surging prices under control. And it's starting to feel like it's being left to do that with a breeze block rather than a mattress. Um, you know, it's lining up, you know, as we've discussed, what could be one of the biggest rate hikes in almost 30 years. Yeah, I mean, there's the speculation that it might be as big as 75 basis points. Is that the only thing behind this sell-off or is, is there more going on? I mean, clearly, it's a big part of why markets are falling, partly because, you know, it's the world's largest economy. Obviously, it's, you know, it's the market that everybody looks at. And, and obviously, the Federal Reserve will probably have some influence on how other central, central banks react to, to what's going on. Um, there's even been some what is probably fairly wild chatter about a full percentage point rise. But it's not that what's what's going on with the Fed and what's been going on with US inflation is not the only reason the markets are under pressure. I mean, the unfortunate reality is there's a lot for investors to worry about just at the moment. Um, it's not and it's not just the Fed which's becoming more aggressive in the fight against inflation. Last week, the, the European Central Bank sort of signaled a bit of a change in direction and, and looked like it was going to be get a bit more aggressive to try and try and tackle rising prices. Um, and then you've got, you know, the war in Ukraine, which shows nice, no sign of letting up. And that's got all sorts of geopolitical and inflationary implications. And just as it looked like, I think last time I was on the podcast, China was emerging from COVID restrictions. It's now walking many of these back. And if we get, you know, new extended lockdowns in China, that's only going to contribute to this sort of inflation becoming more endemic because, you know, it's the world's second largest economy. It's a huge exporter of goods to the West. And if there are new restrictions introduced or restrictions come back in, that's going to have a significant impact on supply chains. So, Tom, as, as Danny says, by the time this goes out, by the time people are listening to this podcast, we'll have the latest on the Fed's interest rate decision. Do you have a sense of which way it's going to go and what might happen to markets i appreciate that's like asking you to look into a crystal ball to an extent <laughs> yeah well, so at the risk of sounding very foolish to people who already know the outcome <laughs> of this um overnight i think the amount of chatter that's been around a 75 basis point increase makes that very likely uh, it possibly suggests that there might have been some leaking um in an attempt to manage the market's expectations um, and given that you know they've been pretty jittery in response. I don't think it's particularly likely that, you know, the Fed chair, um, Jay Powell and his colleagues are going to want to do anything to exacerbate that by delivering some big surprise in, in either direction. Um, I, I guess what, in, given that that's sort of now looks to be factored in and, and is widely expected, what people will be looking at then and what might take a little while for the market to react to is the commentary which accompanies the decision and you know, what that signals about the pace of rate increases through, you know, the rest of the year. Um, so I, I don't, basically, I don't think it's going to be a full stop to the volatility. I think, you know, that's likely to continue. And obviously, you know, as people listen to this, we may well be, they may well be digesting the decision from the Bank of England as well. Before you go, Tom, I've just got to ask you about the crypto sell-off. Bitcoin's at an 18-month low. It's lost more than half its value over this year at around 28% since last Friday. And it doesn't look like we're anywhere near the bottom of this cycle. No, I mean, it's been obviously a very chastening experience for, for anybody who's 
um, invested in cryptocurrency recently. And, you know, some of the talk that we saw about Bitcoin supplanting gold as, as some kind of hedge against inflation, that's been, well, at least in the short term, you know, well and truly swept away. And I guess, you know, a key takeaway is that all of this volatility and the fact that, you know, ordinary investors will probably have been affected by it only makes it more likely that the regulators might start to tighten their grip a little bit on the cryptocurrency space. And you could see potentially that leads to further pressure on prices. So um, like you said, we're not necessarily at the bottom of, of this situation. Thanks, Tom. Danny, let's talk about how this has affected London markets, because hot on the heels of a US rate announcement, we're going to have an update from the Bank of England, aren't we? If there wasn't enough excitement <laughs> to contend with, we have yeah potentially two rate hikes within the space of about 24 hours. Um, but despite what happened on, on Wall Street, and I love some of uh, Tom's uh, words there, his descriptions of, of mm. how it all felt on Monday, um, European equities didn't follow suit. In fact, all major indices on Tuesday were in positive territory, um, including the DAX and the CAC 40, and the FTSE 100 managed to nudge up by uh, 0.3%. Um, banks, oil producers, house builders sort of at the top of the pile. Today has been a bit mixed because European investors have been keeping a close eye on the ECB. Uh, the European Central Bank uh, announced this morning that they were going to have an unscheduled meeting. And I think there was a little bit of excitement that maybe they would sort of deliver a rate hike that they have been saying is on the cards. They didn't announce that, which perhaps disappointed some investors, but they did announce what's being called a new tool, which will see it skew reinvestments of maturing debt to help more indebted members. And it's also going to devise what it's calling a new instrument to stop fragmentation. Now, of course, you know, the ECB has got an even more difficult balancing act than many central banks because of the disparate nature of member economies. You know, what works for one might completely knock the stuffing out of another one. But as you say, we're all at the moment focused on the Fed, which will make its rate decision later today. And then everyone will turn towards the Bank of England. And taking a look today, markets are pricing in 0.25 basis point hike as it seeks to deal with inflation, which hit a 40-year high last month. I mean, that is an incredible statistic. Um, it, it's got quite a, a test of its mettle at this decision because if it hesitates, then we could see the pound being punished more than it already has been. You know, sterling's already fallen around 8% against the dollar this year. Um, so any sign of dovishness could weaken the currency even further, particularly because markets are pricing in this fifth consecutive rate rise. But, you know, the bank's kind of caught between, you know, a rock and a hard place. Um, because on the one hand, you've got incredible inflation numbers. And on the other hand, you've got the risk of recession. And, um, you know, as we've got people paying over £100 to um, fill their car up, uh, we get that on the same day that the OECD forecasts that the UK will be the weakest G7 economy next year then you can just see the sort of contrasts. In amongst all of this, you've got record 
job vacancies. You've got wages being totally overwhelmed by inflation. And just to add to the mix, legal action from the EU against the UK government over it plans to scrap parts of the post-Brexit deal for Northern Ireland. So by raising interest rates, the bank is effectively putting the brakes on an economy, but it's an economy that's already slowing down. And when you looked at the last lot of GDP figures, it's not only slowing down, but it's been going backwards for the last two months, which, of course, has started a lot of people talking about the very real risk of recession. The word gulp comes to mind. So lots of pressure on the bank, on the government and on businesses to do something, but not to do anything that makes things worse. Is that fair? Yeah, it's absolutely fair, because, of course, the, the problem with helping people out, with giving them cash, is that it acts as a stimulus. And the worst thing that you want when you've got record high inflation levels it is to sort of pour fire, pour um, mm-hmm. fuel onto the fire, because, you know, you add all that extra cash and it just burns. And we always say that the you know, the best cure for high prices is is higher prices themselves. But of course, when you've got a situation like this, when a lot of households just are not able to cope at all, then you can't just ignore that. So there's an awful lot going on at the moment because there is a lot of pressure. So you've had um, the government announcing that uh, the former chief executive of Just Eat, David Buttress, um, has been appointed to um, help tackle rising living costs. He's been appointed as a a new um, czar, cost of living czar, talking to businesses, trying to see what they can do. Um, You've also um, got... um, Lloyds Bank announcing that they are going to give their staff, 64,000 of them, um, £1,000 in August. That's that's a a bonus payment, just a a cash payment. But in addition, they are also going to be talking about pay at the moment and, and, you know, looking at um, what the pay increase is going to be. Because Although you have the governor of the Bank of England calling on businesses not to give pay hikes because he didn't want to create a wage spiral, when you've got a tight labour market like this, you know, if people can't afford to cover the basic cost of living, then, you know, they'll probably walk to another job. Mm. But there are lots of people also in work claiming benefits who are really struggling at the moment. And that is why the government's big intervention, the cost of living payment of £650 was announced. And we've now got the date of when the first instalment of that will be paid out. It'll go into people's banks from the 14th of July and should be with them by the end of July. And by targeting the stimulus like that at the lower end, it's anticipated that it won't sort of fuel inflation in the same way as if you gave that cash to everybody, which, of course, is what we saw in the United States, which is why the stimulus there has created such huge rates of inflation at the moment. Yeah, and it's probably worth just running through some of those payments that are going to be going into people's bank accounts in in the coming weeks and months. So you mentioned the first of those two payments set to hit hit people's bank accounts on the 14th of July, so more than 
8 million homes on benefits will receive 324 quid by the end of July. That's the first instalment. The second instalment of 326 quid, taking up taking to a total of 650 pounds, is due in the autumn. That will be paid automatically to anyone in England, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland who receives universal credit, tax credits, pension credits and other means tested benefits. So as, as you say, a very much targeted help at, at, those, at those worst off households. Um, all homes in the UK, regardless of how well off they are, are going to get a £400 grant for help with energy this bills this autumn as well. So that was the the, the controversial loan scheme initially that's been turned now into a £400 grant as the cost of energy has continued to soar. And that's on top of the previously announced £150 council tax rebate. There'll also be a separate £300 payment for pensioners, so those that receive the winter fuel payment, and £150 for disabled people as well. So, so all in, the government says vulnerable families will be getting around £1,200 of support this year. A huge, I mean, just the, the very number of, of those payments, I suppose, shows the scale and the, and the complexity of the challenge that the government faces, both in terms of ensuring everyone gets the help that they need, but also making sure that most of that help is targeted at the most vulnerable families. And you were talking about um, energy bills there. I mean, mm. we still don't know exactly what the uh, the rise in the price um, cap will be when it is announced. We usually get that around the 1st of August, and of course it comes in in October. £700 was the amount last time. The anticipation is around £800, and the actual wholesale gas price has been coming down um, quite significantly over the last sort of few weeks or so, which maybe a lot of people thought might buy as a bit of breathing space might mean that that amount might not be quite as high as we had um, expected. But then we had um, a a hike again yesterday as um, the wholesale gas price went up. And that is because um, Freeport LNG, the operator of one of the largest US export plants producing um, liquefied natural gas, has announced that after an explosion at its Texas Gulf Coast facility, it won't be shut for the three weeks that it had initially said that it, it might be shut for. It's now expecting it's going to be shut for three months. And of course, the knock on for that is a lot of that gas was expected to be shipped to Europe to sort of fill the void, which was being created by the sanctions against Russia. And now, you know, that is not likely to happen. There is expected to be some kind of shortfall. And then what, of course, you see is prices rise. So there is a huge amount of volatility, you know, in in the commodities sector as we've got in markets. Yeah, huge amounts of volatility everywhere, as as you say, and and pensioners can be particularly impacted by that. So I mentioned at the top of the the program, we've been looking at the possible impact of combining high inflation with falling markets on people in drawdown. So that's people who stay invested in funds and stocks and shares and bonds and, 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 and things while taking an income in retirement. So what we what we looked at was two different people in drawdown. So someone who was un, who was very unlucky in the investment returns that they experienced and the overall market conditions that they experienced and someone who was lucky. So the the lucky person 
enjoyed 4% investment growth after charges that was consistent throughout their retirement and their their money was going up in line with inflation. So most people want to retain their spending power in retirement, but inflation stayed at just 2% throughout. So the bank around the Bank of England's inflation target. So, so we looked at someone who was entering drawdown with an, an average size fund for someone who's entering drawdown and taking an income that's around £160,000. And we assumed that they take around 4% of their fund each year. So just over 6,000 quid rising each year in line with infa- inflation. So if you look at the the lucky person, so the person who experiences 4% investment growth, 2% inflation, then oh, then they'll have over £42,000 left in their pot. So from that £160,000 pot after 30 years, so they'll have withdrawn a total of £260,000. They'll still have forty two grand left in their pot. Their fund should last for around 34 years altogether. So they'll, they'll have done pretty well, thank you very much, out of their drawdown investing journey. Now, if you compare, compare that to an unlucky person, so somebody who experiences 9% inflation in the first year of drawdown, so they've had to hike their withdrawals to keep their spending power, and then they experience a 15% drop in the value of their portfolio. And we've seen lots of indices around the world suffer drops of, of that nature recently, then that has a devastating impact on the sustainability of their withdrawal fund plan. So their fund runs out after just 24 years. So that's 10 years earlier than the person who was lucky. And that's just through the pure chance of investment returns and the increase in withdrawals they felt they had to do in order to keep up with their living standards. So the, the real challenge is that there is that if you're in drawdown and you're making big withdrawals at the start and then you suffer negative investment returns at the same time, then it's difficult to make up for that lost ground and it can have a really big impact on the sustainability of your retirement income plan. Difficult but not impossible. Is there anything that they can do? Mm, so I think the key message here is, is that you need you just need to Bear in mind the sustainability of your retirement income plan when you're when you're making withdrawals from your pension and when you're managing your pensions and investments. So obviously, making sure first of all that you're comfortable with the risks that you're taking. So if there is short-term volatility, then that's not a really big shock to you. And if you do experience large investment falls at the same time as you're taking a bit of money out of your pension, then stop and reflect on your withdrawal strategy. Because for most people, the aim of the game is for their pension pot to last as long as they do. And if you just plough on regardless when the circumstances and the potential sustainability of your plan has changed, then the danger is that you'll end up running out of money too soon. So it's it's not a question of, of panicking in the face of volatility, because volatility is part and parcel of long-term investing, but it's just making sure that you don't stick your head in the stand and just in the sand and just plow on regardless and potentially do long-term damage to your retirement income prospects. Now, it's a good job you're here this week because we're sticking with pensions. The government said in the last couple of days it wants more support to be available to people taking a retirement income, which sounds great in theory, but in practice, not all that straightforward. Yes, these things never are, are they? So the the Department for Work and Pensions has launched a a call for evidence looking at what it it calls decumulation. So that's just turning your defined contribution pot of money into an income stream in retirement, be that through drawdown, as we've just discussed, or be that through an annuity from an insurance company or a combination 
of the two. Now, what one of the many slightly odd things about UK pensions is that different rules apply to different types of pension, which isn't ideal. So you have rules governing what's called contract-based pensions. So those are pensions sold by platforms and uh, insurance companies and things like that. And and rules governing trust-based pensions, where there's a trustee in charge looking after the, the interests of the member. And so as a result, just by nature of being in a different type of pension scheme, a trust-based one versus a contract-based one, you might receive different bits of information because the regulation works in a different way. So for example, um, members of contract-based schemes over the age of 50 will receive wake-up packs from their provider. And they'll also be offered what's called investment pathways when they enter drawdown or where they transfer with the intention of entering drawdown. But those rules don't apply to trust-based pensions at the moment. So what the DWP is doing is is looking across the landscape at the different things that apply in the contract-based world and deciding which, if any, of those things should be applied in the trust-based world because their their concern is that as people are moving into drawdown, making what it calls decumulation decisions, the the concern is that that's quite a a complicated thing to do. You've got lots of things that you need to consider, including, of course, the sustainability of your retirement income plan, as I mentioned earlier, as well as the different products that you want to choose and and the point in time that you want to do it as well. So the, the government wants to see more people getting better support um, from their providers, from employers and from elsewhere. Now, that's all well and good, as you said at the top, but the challenge there for for everyone across the piece, both for providers and for employers and anyone who wants to speak and communicate with employees and savers about their retirement income plans, is that there's this blurred line between what counts as regulated financial advice and what counts as guidance for retirement savers and most organizations don't want to go anywhere near what would be classed as being regulated advice but because they don't want to go near it and it's not exactly clear where the line between guidance and advice is then people tend to pull back from offering perhaps as much personalized help to people as perhaps the government and others would like to to see so the government clearly wants people to get more resp- more support around their retirement decisions that's understandable and i think that's something that most people will agree with but until we sort out that thorny issue of the advice guidance boundary there's a limit i think to the extent to which organizations are really going to step in and help those who don't take regulated advice at the moment so if people want help or support with their retirement, yeah. where can they turn at the moment? So lots of different sources of information. So um, regulated financial advisors, I mentioned, for those who are willing to pay for it can be really good value for money. Um, pension wise is the, the free retirement guidance service set up by the government. That's a really useful website with lots of information. You can also have um, uh, an appointment if you're uh, if, if, if you're over 50 years old um, and you can speak to someone there. Um, your provider, providers often send out lots of different bits of information that can be really useful. I think most providers now have have moved away from kind of just selling out sale, sending out salesy guff to people. And actually most of the information that's being sent out nowadays is designed to give you information and support when making what can be 
quite complicated decisions and and things like the money page as well so obviously things like money saving expert and and the the personal finance sections of newspapers can be a, can be a really useful resource for for people who are who are looking to get information on, on a, as i say what can be quite a complicated area salesy guff you do have a way with words <laughs> um, listen we're going to go global now before we chat about a couple of korean cultural phenomena making big news on markets let's turn to india many investors are interested in emerging markets in order to gain exposure to countries with faster economic growth rates than seen in developed markets now while china gets most of the attention in the east india continues to offer a lot of attractions to patient investors Dan Coatsworth recently chatted to Ayush Abhijit, who helps manage the Ashoka India Investment Trust. Let's hear what they have to say. How have Indian markets performed relative to the rest of the world so far this year? On an aggregate level, India, surprisingly, has just been outperforming global markets. Uh, If you look at the performance year to date, uh, compare it with how the US has done, and how other emerging markets have done. Year to date, uh, emerging markets as a pack is down 14%. The US markets are down 13% and India is down 11 percentage points. So India has outperformed emerging markets by three points and US uh, by two points year to date. Uh, Of course, within emerging markets, uh, we have seen certain commodity driven countries like Brazil and Indonesia, which are up year to date. Uh, Also, this year we've seen uh, sizable outflows uh, in terms of FIIs selling Indian stocks to the tune of $20 billion plus. Uh, But still, compared to the previous sell-offs, where uh, we would see much bigger market corrections, this time around the impact has been uh, quite shallow. And a big reason behind that has been the emergence uh, or the steady emergence of domestic Indian investors. Uh, The participation of domestic institutions uh, in the equity markets, that has been on a structural rise because the penetration of uh, equity is very small in India. And this has acted as a counterbalance to the selling by foreign institutional investors in India. Yeah. So what? So I presume that Indian companies are still seeing the same pressures on profit margins as other countries in the world. Because I, I presume that inflation is affecting everyone everywhere. It's not sort of isolated on certain countries, is it? Right. And India has been no exception. Uh, we have seen inflation, uh, an uptick in inflation over the last uh, last couple of months or so. And prior to that, it was relatively steadier in, in closer to 5% range. Uh, now we saw the latest print was closer to 7, uh, which is still below what uh, US has experienced of late. Uh, but still, I think it's, it's, a, it's a global problem and Indian companies uh, uh, have not been spared either. And as a result of that, at a, at a general level, we have seen uh, margin pressures emerge uh, across the market. Many companies have struggled to pass uh, these higher raw material prices. Uh, So here, in in terms of our strategy, we have tried to remain with uh, dominant market leaders that have strong pricing power. 
Uh, and in such companies, which make most part of our portfolio, uh, we have seen the ability to slowly, with a lag, pass down the prices to end customers. Uh, so there is a clear divergence emerging in the market where companies with weak competitive advantages, weak pricing power, commodity business models uh, have struggled to pass on prices, whereas uh, the dominant business models uh, with strong competitive advantages, with strong pricing power uh, have taken some bit of it, but gradually they are slowly and steadily passing on these price increases to end customers without uh, having a negative impact on demand. So I think India's economic growth is sort of forecast to sort of slow this year, but high single digit growth is still expected this year and next year. So that, that would suggest the company's sort of the country's still doing something right. So perhaps what, first of all, what, what's driving the Indian economy? And perhaps second, you talk about investing in companies of pricing power. What, is there sort of particular names in your portfolio that you, you think are really well placed to sort of play this economic growth? So let me address the first part, which is around economic growth first, uh, and why India has been able to uh, uh, do well in terms of growth compared to the broader market. Uh, in fact, uh, fiscal 21, which was the COVID year, India was the only country amongst the major economies globally, where despite the economy shrinking by seven, eight percentage points, the earnings, corporate earnings of the market actually grew on an year and year basis. And we have to kind of rewind a bit. So I would break it down into two parts. First, uh, there are certain structural reasons uh, in place, which has been a key driver of the resilience uh, in economic growth. Uh, and, and this goes back to the slew of reforms that have been set in motion over the past several years, including the goods and services tax, uh, GST, which is a unifying taxation across India, uh, the Real Estate Regulatory Act, RERA, uh, the labor reforms. Uh, we also had corporate tax rate cuts. Uh, and, and then uh, one of the most uh, uh, evolved industrial policy of late that has supported the manufacturing sector. So a variety of structural reforms that have been set in place at various points in time over the last several years uh, have been have played a big role uh, in driving the resilience in the Indian economy. And then there are certain near-term factors as well that are at play. Uh, number one, we have seen a consolidation at play in the Indian market. When I say consolidation, uh, dominant companies have gained market share from weaker players. Many businesses that had weak balance sheets could not withstand economic shocks uh, over the last couple of years, they have gone out of business. The unorganized uh, mom and pop uh, businesses that hitherto did not have any competitive advantages and would only uh, remain in business because of uh, tax avoidance, they have gone out of business. So large dominant companies have expanded their market share substantially uh, over the last couple of years. This was a trend that was already in place of the last decade or so, uh, but the disruptions have accelerated this trend of market share consolidation. And as you would imagine, most of the companies in the listed market, uh, private markets, uh, listed public markets are from this bucket. And most of these companies in our portfolio 
uh, have also experienced market share consolidation. The second near-term factor has been uh, a China plus one trend. COVID exposed the vulnerability of global supply chains. Everybody knew about it, uh, but nobody cared about it until COVID forced corporations, countries to take a hard look at their supply chains. Right from consumer electronics to pharmaceuticals, every industry, if you were to carefully study the supply chain, anywhere between 30 to 40% uh, of the ingredients of the raw materials tended to come from China. And after the COVID crisis, when these supply chains were heavily impacted, companies and countries have started to look for credible alternatives because there is too much concentration risk. And India has emerged as a strong, credible alternative to China. And as a result, we have seen across various industries, ranging from consumer electronics to pharmaceutical manufacturing to specialty chemicals, supply chains have been shifting out of China into India. We have seen manufacturing setups uh, accelerating in India. And this has been a second near-term trend that has aided uh, earnings growth acceleration in the country. And the third one is rising spends on technology. So as a result of, again, because of the pandemic, uh, companies all over the world have taken a hard look at their IT infrastructure uh, and have allocated larger budgets to modernize their technology infrastructure. India is a global leader in IT services. Companies like Infosys, TCS uh, are the dominant companies globally when it comes to IT services, gaining market share from uh, the likes of IBM, DXC, and many of the international IT services companies. Well, Ayush, thank you ever so much for joining us. Uh, really interesting to hear about what's going on in India and, and your sort of investment strategy. So thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thanks, Daniel. Thank you for time. Dan there talking to Ayush Abhijit about investment opportunities in India. And we're staying global now, but zipping across to Korea. And this story that's got a lot of people talking. So Netflix has seen its share price tumble after seeing subscriber numbers fall for the first time. And it's now announced it's turning the surprise mega hit Squid Games into a reality show. That's exciting, isn't it? It is exciting and it's got a huge amount of press attention. But of course, the big question is, can it turn Netflix fortunes around? As you said, you know, its share price is down 72% since the start of the year. Um, I think investors were shocked to see subscriber numbers fall. So what they're doing is they're basically turning what was a, you know, a, a piece of entertainment into an actual reality TV show. And how would you fancy uh, getting a share of, I'm going to do the dollars here, $4.56 million? Um, it, it depends how closely they're planning to mirror Squid Games because th th those games looked ever so slightly dangerous to me. So I, I think if you're six feet under, then you're not particularly going to enjoy the money. But the, the carrot at the end sounds good. It would just be the risk that's involved, I think, that would concern me. 
Yeah, it's quite violent. Mm. Um, my kids absolutely love it. And I, I would imagine there will be an awful lot of people lining up to take part in this. Um, you would assume that, um, you know, in terms of insurance, uh, they won't be allowed to, you know, recreate Squid Games uh, as it were before, but it, it certainly generated a huge amount of interest, which is exactly what Netflix needed to do. Um, while we are talking about a cultural phenomena, are you a BTS fan, Tom? Who or, or what are BTS? <laughs> well, my kids are massive fans, my eldest daughter in particular. Thankfully, Jenny Owen is with us. Jenny, are you a BTS fan? Hello. Um, yeah, I am, I suppose. Yeah, I, I know um, I know there's seven of them. I know they sang a few songs which were in the top ten. Um, but yeah, no, I, I know them mainly because they do crazy good choreography. Yeah, K-pop boy band. And, you know, they were the first Asian band named Artists of the Year at the American Music Awards last year. But they have caused an absolute furore on stock markets because the BTS frontman um, and his fellow band members said at a group dinner on Tuesday that the group needed a break. In fact, uh, it was said that the problem with K-pop and the whole idol system is that they don't give you time to mature. Now, actually, there are some bigger issues at play here because the oldest member of the group, Jin, is uh, 29 years old and he is expected to have to sign up to military conscription this year. There's a big pressure on authorities to um, allow globally recognised pop artists to be exempted from mandatory conscription. But, you know, that that's going to take some time. And today what's happened is that Hype, which relies heavily on BTS, the um, South Korean entertainment agency, saw their shares absolutely tank. I mean, 28% was wiped off. But that's about... Um, well, it's almost $2 billion uh, worth of market value. And it's sort of have a knock on to other entertainment shares as well. But, you know, investors really caught on the hop here because BTS is just such a massive part of hype. With, and without them, you know, profits are expected to be materially lower um, because they play such a massive part. And, I have to say that my eldest daughter has um, posters of, of some of them up on her walls. She absolutely loves them. And, and some of the songs are actually quite catchy. We'll have to play you one, Tom. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I I'm feel sure. like I'm going to have I'm going to have to do a bit of cultural catching up here. I've, uh, I, a, lot, a lot of this is going over my head. I don't think I've ever felt quite as past it as I do right now. And, and I'm, a, I'm a pensions analyst, so that's saying something. <laughs> I'm sure you would have heard their song Dynamite, but I think the difference here is also that, like, thinking about One Direction, for example, in the UK, they one of their band members left and then eventually they broke up, whereas BTS seemed to like, almost be on, like, a winning streak. Um, so for them to call it quits while they're at the peak was quite, I think, quite shocking for their fans, especially. Yeah. yeah very... So this is why we've got you on, Jenny, to give us a bit of young perspective. Yeah. <laughs> Thank so you. Very, very, few, very few people get to end on the top, but that's exactly what Jenny Owen's going to do. Because <laughs> Jenny Owen is absolutely 
on top of a game at the moment. And this is a, a bit of a moment because it might just be our last Money Madness. And Jen, you are going to go out in style, which is the only way you know how to go out. Sorry, <laughs> that's very close to your heart. So the floor is yours. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Yeah, so this story is close to home for me because it's quite literally quite close to where I live. Um, I'm sure we've all felt the brief pang of shame when returning an overdue library book, and I definitely wasn't my school librarian's favourite person. But where most people go over by a few days or a week, one book has been returned after 48 years and posted all the way from Canada to southwest London. Tony Spence, who lives in British Columbia, borrowed a book called A Confederate General from Big Sur from Tooting Library in 1974. He says he decided to return it as he's a great believer and supporter of libraries and he thought it would give the librarian something to chuckle about. Thankfully for Tony, the library has a capped fee of £8.50. Otherwise, he'd be paying an enormous charge of £6,170.85. They normally charge 25p a day for the first four weeks, then 35p thereafter, um, adding up to over £6,000 for a book that apparently gave the voice uh, to the hippie generations uh, published in 1964. So thank goodness for a fee cap. Um, The library have said they still can't confirm whether it's the most overdue book as the date of Tony's loan predates their computer system. Jen, we don't know if this will be your last contribution. It depends on train strikes and all sorts of things. But thank you so much for your money madness. You really will be missed. Um, That is it for this week's pod. Next week, Laura will be back with her latest in her Cost of Living series. Tom's back with Pensions Corner. Hope you can join us then. Thanks for listening. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.